Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 45 of the podcast, the topic is Global Innovation Index. Our guest is Professor Sumitra Dutta, Cornell University, co-author of Global Innovation Index, which is published by the World Intellectual Property Foundation. In this conversation, we talk about measuring innovation, the challenges of developing governance at the country level across the globe, and how to improve innovation input and output. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Sumitra, how are you doing today? Very well indeed. Thank you very much. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the show. And um, before we uh, cover uh, an enormous ground of, of uh, countries and innovation and development and, and, and a lot of exciting things that you are involved with, I wanted to just trace a little bit your background because I think it's exciting whenever someone straddles uh, different countries, right? And uh, and you you have uh, similar to the report you run, you have been on a on a bit of a transformational journey yourself. Uh, you're obviously now a professor at Cornell, and uh, you have been a dean there. Um, but before that, you were many many years at INSEAD in uh, you know outside Paris in, in France. Uh, but before that, I believe you attended the, one of the IITs in in, in Delhi, and, and your background is uh, is from from India. But in the meantime, somewhere in the, your career, you also went to Berkeley, which I can appreciate. So a lot of interesting places to spend your time, Sumitra. What, what in your career has brought you to your current interest, longstanding interest in innovation? And, and, and what has been kind of the most important p- piece in this career? Yeah, I think thank you very much, uh, Tron, for your sort of nice summary of my, <laughs> of my career and life so far. But... Um, I feel very privileged to have been able to benefit from multiple perspectives over my life. Uh, yes, I did grow up in Asia, but then I did study in the U.S. And unlike many of my you know, countrymates who came to the U.S. and lived on in the U.S. for many years, I made this rather unusual move back in the late 80s of going to France. And I went to France when I didn't speak a word of French, you know, really. I, I didn't know even bonjour, <laughs> bonsoir, nothing. I knew nothing. And that was because uh, I had met my to-be wife then. And she was in a Fulbright scholarship. She had to go back to Europe. I met her in Berkeley. And INSEAD was kind enough to make me an offer. You know, INSEAD is a business school, and I was doing a PhD in computer science in Berkeley. And it wasn't a clear choice then in the late 80s to hire me, but nevertheless did. It wasn't a clear choice for me to also choose NCA, but I did. And I must say the last 30 years have been amazing because technology has become an integral part of business. So in many ways, you know, pre-80s technology was much more technical and post-80s, I think, you know, uh, technology become very much part and parcel of business. So in many ways, I've benefited from the tremendous 
expansion of technology in business, I've really learned a lot in the process myself. You asked a question about innovation. I come into innovation from my technology roots. And many years ago, in 2001, 2002, I was part of a small group at the World Economic Forum in which we're looking at coming up with a framework for technology development assessment. So we came up with something that is called the Network Readiness Index. I still publish it right. even now. And uh, as a result of that, I got involved very much in government and national policies around innovation, sorry, around technology. As I was working in many countries and seeing what is happening with technology, it became obvious to me that a lot of innovation was taking place in all these countries, especially emerging markets. And I was always amazed that despite the high level of innovation in the people and the society, a lot of those innovation wasn't being captured properly by metrics, which typically tended to revolve around PhDs and patents and publications, aspects on which many emerging markets do not do very well. So I thought there was a need to try and capture that holistic nature of innovation. And that's really the origin of my forays into innovation and the creation of the index. Well, it is fascinating. And as you pointed out, it was rare then to be a computer scientist at a business school in France, but it is also rare now to be a professor at a business school and care so much about government, right? Which, you know, of course there are people who do that, but but even that leap is uh, is another kind of difference that distinguishes you from, from many people, obviously, at business schools who, who, who care about business. Let's jump into kind of the heart of the matter. I am curious, what is the Global Innovation Index? First off, what, what is it? What are you attempting to do? And then let's, let's look into, I mean, it's a relatively fresh report, so we'll, we'll, we'll look at the content. But first off, what, what is, so you, you lined up that there was an idea that you wanted to measure innovation more broadly. What does the index do? Right. So, you know, the way we think about innovation as a phenomena also has changed. And some people say innovation has innovated, you know, so there's innovation in the way we think about innovation itself. And innovation has become a much more broad-based phenomenon in society. Today, I think a lot of people would accept the notion that you don't need a PhD to innovate. Uh, you don't need to be a researcher in some research lab to innovate. Yes, PhDs and researchers do innovate, but a lot of innovation takes place with a farmer in a field or with a you know, woman who starts a small microfinance unit in a village somewhere. So innovation is a broad-based phenomena in society. And the Innovation Index really is designed to capture that broad-based nature of innovation happening around us. Mm. And we looked at you know, various aspects of how to measure it. And clearly, and I, I created this index and the first edition was in 2007. So I started thinking about it around 2005. And the thinking around then around innovation was quite focused and constrained, as I said, on patterns, publications, citations, and very limited metrics. And it took some time to actually get a consensus around what could be the kind of features we would like to see in economy to 
measure whether or not that economy is innovative. I took a lot of inspiration from work in total quality management because in the management field, that is probably the one area where measurement has been central and where there have been formal attempts at measurement, you know, the oldest, at least in management science, the first total quality management award, the Deming Award was awarded in 1951. So there is, in a sense, a history of measurement, which is much more mature. So we took a lot of inspiration from there to come up with the Global Innovation Index. So it was really an attempt to try to understand the phenomenon of, of innovation, to give a conceptual anchor around it, and hope that that would guide policymakers from both the private and public sectors to make the right decisions to enhance the innovation potential of their own economies. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the evolution of, of this report and your partners there, because even though you said you wanted to kind of get away from just measuring patents, one of your big partners in the report is the World Intellectual Property Organization. So there is a little bit of patents there, but uh, and we can talk about that, uh, you know, what that means later. But let's jump into what this report tells us about 2020. I am particularly, you know, obviously we're, it's interesting to see who's on top, but even more so, I'm interested in what, what do you think are the surprises? Uh, or maybe you're now so versed in this that you can kind of predict every little move of, of a country. But so first off, as far as I uh, am aware, Switzerland won the contest this year. Why did Switzerland win? So... You know, it's Switzerland has been ranked for the last, I think, eight years consistently. And that consistency is quite amazing. Um, you know, the innovation model is a summary of various components. So we have five, what we call our pillars, you know, the whole institutional context, the human resource side, the infrastructure side, the business sophistication side, and the market sophistication side. And then we have two output pillars, the technology outputs. So patents are actually included very strongly in that pillar and the creative services sector output. And what we see is, you know, these, to get a high rank on the innovation index, and that's the way the model is designed, you need to perform very well in all those elements. It's like the links right. in a change, in a chain. You know, if one link is weak, then fundamentally the chain is weak. And the logic behind that is, you know, you might have great human capital, but guess what? If the political stability in the country is not there, then, you know, the great people do not create great companies in that country or will not do so so easily. So Switzerland does very well at performing at an excellent level in all the dimensions. Overall, it really tops the ranking. The U.S. Is, comes in number third, and many people would argue and say, well, you know, U.S. has Silicon Valley and Boston, and it's true. They are, you know, sort of clusters of high-end innovation happening in those parts of the U.S., but the U.S. also has large parts in between that are not like Silicon Valley and Boston. So in some sense, there's a weakness in the U.S. in some areas, which pulls the U.S. in relative terms a little bit down. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people intuitively, when they read an innovation report, they expect to see what they think is the world's biggest economy always on top. But, you know, I've read many of these reports and I realize it's very rarely the case, actually. So 
Um, let's take a complete opposite end of the spectrum. You know, I am originally from Norway. I was just intrigued to to look at that as well. And and you know, I'm by no means someone who says that Norway is perfect. I was kind of intrigued because you pointed out similarly, and I don't know if you have Norway in front of you, but it was a little bit the same as uh, you know, as with the U.S. That uh, they're good on 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 quite a few dimensions, but on a few on one in particular. Um, it just almost fails the uh, the index, and 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 in Norway's case, it had to do with uh, a distinction between these inputs and these outputs. And you know, we can go into some detail or not. But first off, why don't you explain what is an input, an innovation input versus an innovation output? It wasn't actually. I mean, I study innovation, but inputs and output. It wasn't entirely clear to me what you yeah. meant by that before I read the metric. So you know, earlier I said that the inspiration for this came from the total quality management literature because that's where the yeah. thinking and the framework of management and how do you measure quality has evolved the most. And if you look at how that quality literature has evolved uh, in 1950s, it was very much measuring statistical process control on the manufacturing flow. If you yeah jump forward you know seven decades and look at today how is quality defined it is very much seen as a holistic measure of excellence in the entire company you know the entire company's operations and so on and similarly i think what we have done in the innovation measurement is looked at the holistic nature of innovation both in terms of aspects in the economy that help innovation to thrive and aspects that show that innovation is thriving. Same thing in quality. You know, you have aspects that help a company become a quality company and aspects that show a company is a quality company. So we took this notion of things that need to be put in place for the foundations and things that need to be seen as viable outputs of that phenomenon. So that's the distinction between inputs and outputs. And as I said earlier, we have five input pillars, institutions, human capital and research, infrastructure, market sophistication and business sophistication, and two output pillars, knowledge technology outputs and creative outputs. And I must emphasize that, you know, even these pillars were quite innovative 15 years ago or 13 years ago is that, uh, for example, 13 years or 15 years ago, people didn't look at the creative outputs as an example of innovation. You know, people didn't look right. at online creativity or like movies and TVs and books, you know, as examples of innovation. But we do believe they're parts of innovation landscape. So that's what are the inputs and outputs. You mentioned the case of Norway. Norway's overall score is number 20 in the world. So actually, it's pretty good. And Norway is a lovely country, and I've been there a few times. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Norway's input rank is 15, and output is 28. And that's an interesting, let's say, element. So what it tells you is, in relative terms, Norway is investing a lot in the foundations. Okay, the foundation right. innovation. Okay, it's 15 is ranked actually higher than its overall rank. But its actual output rank, 28, is in relative terms lower than its inputs and its overall rank. So what it means is somehow the investments in innovation are not getting translated effectively into outputs. Exactly. 
And that's and I a challenge. Found that very, yeah. yeah, and I found that very interesting because I think you, you know, if you look at the U.S., you could perhaps say the same, at least for specific sectors, right? So right now, healthcare is a, something a lot of people in the U.S. care about, and you could say, yes, the U.S. has a fantastic research system for health and is you know widely viewed and in you know people take inspiration read the research reports uh, look at the fantastic you know life science companies or medical device companies but in terms of the output of the quality of the system for the greater number of people you're not really getting value for the investment and and i guess in norway's case it must be you know even though a lot of money is invested in various infrastructure type projects for technology and innovation, they are not getting it out in, even in patents in Norway's case, I, you know, and, and, and in the number of, and I think for Norway, I actually looked at the, some of the details in Norway, and, and it, uh, you also have something about the quality and how hard it is to, to attain various things, I think on the output side. So it's easy to, to enter university or something. So I guess in terms of the quality of the, the your quality metrics around the institutions and, and the kinds of candidates it puts out, for instance, I think Norway didn't have enough STEM candidates for your yeah. Your so, metric. so I think you know in Norway's case, I have the data in front of me. Uh, Norway is doing extremely well on most metrics. You know, in fact, in markets, you know, it's uh, sorry, in infrastructure is ranked number one in the world. You know, uh, but the weakest pillar is knowledge and technology outputs. So in the area, especially in terms of high technology, so in high tech exports, you know, it's ranked 47th. In ICT services exports is ranked 65th. So what you see is Norway is, you know, uh, as we all know, Norway is lucky enough to have one of the few European countries to have oil. And that has uh, perhaps influenced the way in which uh, the ICT sector and high tech hasn't probably developed as much in Norway as in Finland or the you know neighboring yep. uh, sort of countries. I think you're right about that. So you know now I want to move to more of the the dev tech aspect of what you're doing. But before we do that, uh, m- maybe just a little uh, question I have on. So, to what extent can you use this tool as a policy tool? And and I speak as someone who has actually tried to do that, and and I was subject to twenty seven countries, you know, complaining that the EU was doing this, that, or the other. We were measuring innovation in e government, and everyone was arguing, right? So right now, if I was representing Norway, I would say, well, hey, you know, uh, professor, you're measuring the wrong things. But there is a silver lining to measurement, and I'm assuming this is why you are so excited about this game. If you look at you know, at the really at the lower end of the scale, what is it? And and we'll talk about some of the countries you know that are leaders and, and laggards in kind of in, in a in a development sense. What is it that you're asking countries and actors in those countries, or maybe donors, to do when they spot something, let's say a weakness? So you know, you're absolutely right. Um, we do get a lot of feedback, most of it very <laughs> yeah. positive and helpful sure. feedback, but sometimes critical feedback too about uh, the data and the variables used. You know, we have made a choice, uh, which is a deliberate choice in the results and the, in the framework to go for breadth. So we emphasize covering as many countries as possible. 
And even if you have to make some sacrifice in terms of the precise variable coverage we can find for all those countries. So if you only chose, let's say, the OECD countries or EU countries, only one country, you might have much richer data available for measuring innovation. But if you have a much broader global coverage, the strength of what you have, in fact, becomes some weak in some areas. So with that, with that uh, comment, nevertheless, this framework is extremely useful for governments. And this I'm saying it from my own experience, having worked with many over the last decade or so. Uh, I'll give you one or two examples. The government of Costa Rica, for example, came and told us that they have changed the way they measure innovation because they never actually looked at the creative services sector as an aspect of the innovation policy. So this framework gave them a mental model to say, look, you know, this is an important part of what is happening in our economy. Let's actually also look at that and develop that further. Uh, the government of India and many of the countries, by the way, they have often argued and said that, you know, the framework as a whole has many variables. You know, India is special. We have, uh, you know, special needs in our country. And we agree with that. You know, we're not trying to deny the uniqueness of each country. So what they have done is they have taken the broad framework that we believe is the right framework, the five pillars and the two output pillars and so on, and they have populated that by specific variables for the Indian context mm. uh, that they have much more richer data on in the Indian environment. So they created an India Innovation Index based on this. And this is something that we also encourage countries to do is take the framework, you know, populated with variables that are much more richer and more available for your own country and create your own benchmarks. So. Yeah. Fundamentally, what it does, it focuses the attention of the leaders on innovation of the theme for policy. It identifies areas of possible you know, weakness and gives them guidance of what kind of strengths or what kind of actions to implement and provides, a, I think, a very useful benchmarking tool because you know the world is competitive always in one way or the other. And so it's good to know how you fare compared to others. I agree with that. So what about some of the surprises? I mean, is it is it so predictable now that countries only ever move up one or two spots or or was there any surprise in 2020 for you or for or for the index? No, I think you know, well, it is true that uh, there is not a lot of movement in the top 20 typically. And the reason is because you know, they are often not always, but often high-income economies, and they have tremendous legacy strengths, education, infrastructure, and policies, and institutions, and so on, that it takes years for any other middle or low-income economies to you know, catch up to or to replicate. So there is a certain amount of legacy out there, which is very important. But having said this, we do find shifts in the top 10, top 20, and we do find some countries that keep moving up quite rapidly. So, for example, China has been moving up very rapidly. You know, China's in the news recently. So, you know, China is ranked number 14 this year. And that is quite remarkable for a middle-income economy to be ranked that high. And China has been moving up over the years, you know, significantly in a steady, fairly steady fashion. And as we probably know that today China exceeds the U.S. on some key metrics like 
number of publications, number of researchers, number of patents, and so on. Another country that's entered the top 10 this time for the first time is uh, uh, Korea. Korea, again, is a country that has been moving up uh, you know, steadily and has done extremely well. And we all understand the, you know, the technology success stories behind Korea's success. At a more broader level, you see a shift happening towards Asia. Both the countries are talked about where from Asia, but besides Korea and, and uh, China, you also see India, Philippines, Vietnam moving up. And India has moved, you know, from... I think in the low 80s, about five years ago to 48 this year, and clearly there's room for it to improve further. So you see a shift towards Asia as a whole. But another thing which is very positive and which is something you would not expect naturally is we do try to look at who are the countries that are overachieving as compared to the peers at the same income per capita group. So the same income uh, sort of wealth levels who are overachieving. And right. a lot of the in- innovation achievers actually come from sub-Saharan Africa. And that is, I think, a very positive result. You know, you see countries like Rwanda, Madagascar, Malawi, you know, they are amongst those countries. In fact, sub-Saharan Africa sees the, we see the highest number of innovation overachievers from that part of the world. And which I think is a very positive sign. Do you have any idea why that is? Is that because uh, of the story of Chinese investment? Is it has it to do with any FDI, any investment, or is it ingrown changes? Is it truly that they have picked themselves up in some way that that hasn't happened in the in the past decade? I think it's more of the latter, it's because Chinese yeah. investment happens pretty uniformly, you know, in many parts of Africa, not uniformly right. at least. So that would have that would have lifted the entire continent. Yeah, not, that would have lifted exactly. But if I look at the list of countries, and that is there, I'm looking at the table in the report. Uh, so among the African countries, so you have Kenya, Malawi, Rwanda, Mozambique. Uh, uh, Madagascar, uh, South Africa, uh, and Tunisia, and Morocco. Okay, so uh, yeah. those are the countries that are this year in the overachievers list from Africa. And I think what you see, of course, each country's story is different. Each country's context is different. There's no one uniform storyline for each country. But besides the fact that it gives us hope for the future of Africa, I think the answer to your question is, in most cases, it is because there is a national leadership and a drive to push innovation in the country. Uh, you know, Rwanda is often quoted for many examples, you know, where the president has been very aggressive about pushing, you know, innovative policies and innovation and digital infrastructure as a key part of the country's development plan. So I think you're finding examples of uh, a strategic shift towards innovation, which is showing results in many parts of Africa. Hmm. I, I mean, it, th- this must be very inspiring uh, to people because a lot of the time, right, these innovation reports either only focus at the top of the ladder or they kind of just dig into to very specific sectors. But this very uh, regional and kind of economy 
group or you know grouping people in terms of uh i mean it, it seems more intuitively like these countries would would be more inspired by by comparing themselves with what you in the report call them kind of economic peers so that's that's an interesting interesting approach i wanted to ask you something sort of slightly different and topic of the day really right I know you published this report in the middle of COVID. What are the innovation effects uh, on the world at large uh, around COVID that you could see in this year's report? Which, of right. course, is a snapshot uh, snapshot in time. I realize, you know, it. I don't know exactly where your when your data was gathered, but I'm assuming a lot of the indicators were from the beginning of the year, as opposed to, you know, just uh, you know last week. But right. uh, what are you starting to see there? So that's a very important question. We get asked that question very often. And yes, you're right. Most of the indicators were from last year. Uh, and so in, in, in some sense, the data does not really reflect um, a lot of what is happening in the COVID environment. But we have, you know, we do keep track of data on many aspects across industry sectors, across uh, countries. And what we are finding is there is enough room for cautious optimism for innovation to thrive even in this crisis and post the crisis. And the reason we say this is if you go back to the last crisis, which is the financial crisis of 2008-2009, what happened was very interesting. Historically, always the rate of growth of innovation investments roughly parallel the rate of GDP growth. So the right. two moved in parallel. Now, what we saw in 2008, 2009 was there was a divergence out there. In the last decade, uh, the rate of growth in investment innovation R&D has actually gone higher, has been progressing at a higher rate than the rate of growth of GDP. So there's a divergence in the two graphs. And the reason for the divergence, in fact, is increased investment in the private sector. Because even though in many countries, the government component of the investment innovation R&D declined, the total government plus private actually kept on increasing because the private sector stepped in tremendously. Now, if you look at the private sector, four sectors essentially generate or cover approximately 75, 78% total R&D expenditure. is essentially the ICT hardware sector, the software services sector, the pharmaceutical sector, and the automobile sector. So those four sectors together you know, account for about 75, 80% of total R&D investments. Now, what you see is that these four sectors haven't seen any decline in investment innovation and R&D. And one would argue that the amount of innovation and investment innovation R&D has actually increased in the sectors in the last few months because digital you know, trends have become more accentuated and accelerated. Right. And in many of the other sectors which have been hit very badly, let's say tourism and transport and you know, hospitality and so on, yes, there will be many companies that will suffer. But you know, we all know that some companies will come out of this as survivors and leaders of the new generation of you know activities in these sectors and it is quite likely that these survivors and new winners will have to innovate significantly because it's not a question of going back to the way life was done 
in the previous pre-COVID era. So technology so you, and investment yeah. will have to increase. And so that's the reason why we feel that there will be increased innovation investment going forward. So there's a lot of talk about new normal, right? Or there was initially this year. I hear it less now, perhaps because mm-hmm. it's kind of counterintuitive that there would be a, a, a new uh, normal or that it would feel you know, normal. It, it certainly doesn't feel normal yet. But on the innovation side, I guess you could say the theory would be, I guess, that the winners would have to be that more innovative to survive and then would kind of drag the rest of the market with them. So if you had an arguably a tourism or a travel sector that hadn't innovated at the speed of the ICT sector, now that the sector is slightly diminished, it has to get their, its act together and it'll come out of it probably different actors, however, right? Different ownership structures and stuff. But it'll come out uh, with a better value for the world and for the countries that that operate those businesses. Uh, so, is is that kind of uniformly the the answer from every crisis, or is it just the answer from this crisis and so, and the financial? Crisis? So, you because know, you know, we, the same was said about the World War. You know, the World War was a blessing for right. innovation and and all kinds of things. So. As I said, you know, we are, what I believe is the one of the big forces for innovation today is the acceleration of digital computing trends. You know, so that's we are in the hockey step, you know, the hockey stick part, the vertical part of that hockey stick curve. And things are changing so rapidly in terms of what is possible. I think there'll be new ways of organizing ourselves, new ways of doing things, and they'll all become easier, faster, better in many ways. Uh, and we've seen this, for example, video conferences and remote teaching. You know, Just five years ago or 10 years ago, people have said this is impossible to move entire universities to online teaching, but no, we did it. And this is partly because technology allowed us to do so. So the world is going to adjust or will be required to adjust very rapidly. So I do believe that the innovation will happen, uh, will speed up, and technology will be one big driver driving this. Hmm. We have talked a lot about innovation at a country level, uh, but then obviously an economy consists of smaller, uh, smaller, more more nimble players as well. What do you see in the in the startup arena? Uh, is it going to be, again, startups that are closely linked with these four sectors of R&D? Or are you going to see breakout startups in other areas that don't perhaps need as much either government R&D or other type of R&D to mm-hmm. innovate? So I'm happy you mentioned startups because one of the worrying trends we have seen in the not just last six months, I would say in the last two years, has been a decline in the number of VC deals. You know, there has been a tendency towards going towards the large unicorn deals that are sucking away right. a lot of the money in the from the VCs. And that is not very you know, supportive of having many startups coming up and trying to come up with new ideas and succeed, you know, in some sense in the marketplace. So what I do hope is that some of that tendency is corrected given some of the recent market you know valuation changes in some of the unicorns which haven't been very favorable i yeah. do hope that uh, there are other means of supporting startups that are 
put in place more actively, for example, with the government. Government procurement can actually support startups quite well. Uh, large companies can also take a role in helping m- make that happen. And there might be other innovative ways of financing that will emerge. So I do hope that we see more startups emerging. Now, the question of which sectors will emerge, clearly the sectors that are more closer to digitalization will be the ones that I think will see more startups emerge. But essentially, all of services, you know, in most countries, 80% of the economy is services. So almost any part of the service economy is prone to digitalization and innovation in terms of startup activities. Of course, innovation does happen in agriculture and manufacturing too, but services is a very uh, very ripe area for startup activity. Well, one thing that I find interesting is that in, in many ways, right, a lot of the digital effects that came early on out of digitization were uh, kind of in the back office. But isn't there also the promise going forward that some of the technologies that have been used mostly for the professional segment can also be used more for the typical frontline worker? I mean, how, how do you see that shaping out? So if you think about manufacturing, they are obviously at the front line of COVID and uh, and so, some of them aren't service workers, but they're, they're actually factory workers, but also other type of frontline service workers. If you think about food delivery and, and, and all kinds of delivery services, they are also at the front lines. What do you see as uh, the potential there for um, either automation, augmentation, and ways that those roles can be carried out more efficiently or more powerfully with more right. value for society? Because this is a big question for the development, uh, you know, for dev tech, right? And one thing is in the Western world where we're kind of squeezing out margins and but also squeezing out innovation out of professional service workers. But if you're talking about large strands of Africa and innovating in, you know, Rwanda or Madagascar, you're to a large extent talking about making a more efficient manufacturing sector as well, aren't you? Yeah. So I think the impact of technology is being felt, you know, in all sectors, you know, any business can be thought of in terms of a front office, and a back office. And you know, manufacturing companies typically have a large back office and a small front office. Service companies have a large front office and a small back office. So if you think about uh, manufacturing companies where you have a large back or a large back office, you're seeing a lot of technology coming out there for automation. And uh, more and more companies are essentially automating a lot of the processes and the factory flow completely. And that's happening more and more, will happen even more. In terms of service companies in the front office, a lot of the effect of automation is to essentially try and push a lot of the work or at least integrate the customer into the process. So get the customer to do self-service, to enter the information, to, you know, when you go to Amazon, you self-serve yourself, essentially on the Amazon site. So I think this kind of integration of the customer, uh, trying to also productize the service offered by the frontline worker into a software asset. The many consulting companies are looking at how to create you know, assets, software assets out of their traditional advisory services. Uh, these all trends will continue and will change the industry quite a bit. And as far as 
other technologies are concerned, you know, drones and these technologies will certainly impact the way delivery is done in multiple ways in cities and in, you know, even in remote areas as in Rwanda. Right, right, because that's the big old discussion about right. uh, leapfrogging. And is there is there evidence? I mean, do you measure leapfrogging in your report at all? This idea yes, we that do. you can kind of skip a step yeah. of infrastructure. Yeah. So we have, in fact, just finished a study looking at leapfrogging. And leapfrogging can be measured looking at the countries that outperform an innovation on the GII. Yeah. As I said yeah. earlier, some of the African countries are also leapfrogging and they are showing up in the results of the innovation overachievers. And we have tried to actually understand what kind of elements drive, you know, in some sense, the uh, the ability of nations to leapfrog. And some of the elements are elements like, for example, the absorption capacity. You know, does the country have the capacity to absorb technologies? Because you cannot absorb technology, you cannot actually integrate and build on that. Uh, some of the aspects, of course, human capital is very important, but also institutions. We don't have good institution, a good environment for innovation and growth. You will not be able to leapfrog. You know, so I think we are able to find interesting examples based on 10 years of data by income group or by region. So that is actually quite interesting. Hmm. I just had a thought. I mean, can your type of report be used by uh, be used for investment purposes by companies or individuals? In other words, let's say I have a thesis, you know, I want to I want to go into some growing parts of the world and you know and either individually set up startups or, or or do market entry there. For instance, if you look at your regional leaders in this year's report in 2020, so you have India, South Africa, Chile, Israel, Singapore, uh, among the kind of uh, countries uh, together with China, which you of course mentioned, but then smaller countries, uh, perhaps more interestingly in, in this respect. So if you have Vietnam and, and also the United Republic of Tanzania, let's just take let's take a few smaller countries so you know or vietnam and tanzania what is it that you know one is if you are tanzania then you you can kind of benchmark yourself but can your type of report be used in some meaningful way to argue that you should do a market entry in tanzania versus in some other country uh, and and what are the consequences of of, of that right so in fact some large global companies have used a report for deciding where to base the R&D labs or how to direct the investments in innovation in some countries around the world. And if let's say you choose Tanzania or you choose Norway, you know, as a country to invest in, then this data also tells you in objective fashion uh, what the strengths and weaknesses are. So if you're trying to build, let's say, you know, let's take the example of Norway because of Norway, you know, Norway is an advanced country, very rich country, one of the richest countries in the world. But if you're trying to build a facility or a, some kind of outpost that relies a lot on ICT, on technology, then what the report tells you is that Norway has certain relative weakness in ICT. So you might actually want to think about, A, is it the right place? And if I want to choose Norway because of other reasons, then let me make sure I'm able to infuse enough ICT links to Finland or other countries or bring in enough ICT talent to make my investment actually operational and successful. So it gives us kind of a you know, benchmark to decide where to go and if you go, how to compensate for some of the relative weaknesses. Yeah, no, that's interesting. 
Now, I know you're, you know, you're a research-based scientist, and it's not always uh, the same as being uh, willing to to go out on the complete futurist limb. But if you look at the next decade, much more broadly, and I, and I know, you know, your reporting has been covering now what thirteen years in in your reports. But if you're sort of looking into the crystal ball and just thinking about the next decade, what do you see as the most disruptive? Uh, things that that will happen on a, on a country scale i mean are you one of those that sort of says this march or this focus on asia is going to mean that asia will dominate uh, maybe not this decade but the next or are you sort of seeing that these shifts will go back and <coughs> forth and that it's not so easy to make for instance a regional argument over over a decade you can see it over a few years but it won't necessarily mean that this next decade or the the following will be the decade of asia's growth uh, what are your reflections on if you take extrapolate from 13 years into the next 10 years yeah no that's a very good question you're asking and there's not an easy question to answer but uh, having had let's say 10 years or more of data you can start making some directional predictions. So clearly, Asia's rise, which is often spoken of, is actually validated by the data. So if you are a company that is looking at global innovation, or trying to form a global innovation strategy, you should be well advised to look at Asia seriously, because that's what the data also shows. Uh, A lot of people have often expressed concern about what the future of Africa And what our data is showing is that the future of Africa may not be as negative as some people fear it may be. They are, in fact, you know, emerging hotspots of innovation emerging in Africa. And perhaps, you know, we should think about ways to build regional hubs around these economies. So I think it can, it can, we will see an emergence of Africa and Africa, people often say, you know, is the continent that will probably be the most exciting continent after Asia to watch for. And Interesting, been, though, yeah. that what you're saying is that it's a maybe a regional play as opposed to, right. I mean, what, there's a hundred countries plus in, in Africa? I mean, this is not a, it's a continent, but that's a that's a simple way of looking at it, right? It's, yes. it's just so much more than a than one thing. Yeah, right. But I think, you know, as opposed to when, when when organizations are trying to help the continent, they might want to right. think in terms of, you know, it's even like, for example, uh, in, 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 in uh, the U.S., you know, we have Canada, U.S., and Mexico coming together in the USMCA or the old NAFTA agreement, you know, then you have the Mercosur, you know, you have different, so groupings, I think groupings are very important for scale. The reason why innova- the groupings that drive innovation is because they give you scale. And scale today gives you not just customers, but gives you data. And data drives, you know, the competitive success of so many businesses. And one reason why China is doing so well is the data availability for the companies is so much higher. Right. Well, this literature on innovation hotspots, and I know you, you in this report you enter a little bit into it. it. It's kind of interesting, right? Because for a long time, you know, it was, everyone was just sort of copying Silicon Valley, and then clearly there are other innovation hotspots around the world, but they are now many of them achieving a certain scale. What is your advice to, let's say that you are in charge of innovation policy for a given country, is the ultimate and 
basically best answer <clears throat> always to go into kind of a, a regional type of agreement in order to achieve this scale? Or are there other ways to bypass geographical proximity now with, with technology? Or, or is that too early still? No, I think the you know geography still plays a very important role. You know, even in the digital world that we have today, uh, you know, take the UK. The biggest uh, trading partner of the UK is the European Union. You know, so the geography does play a very big role. Uh, for US, it is Canada. You know, so what I'm just trying to say is, it's a very big. Uh, so the the importance of local markets cannot be underemphasized. But having said this. Today, what is happening is people are realizing the strategic value of data. As I mentioned earlier, if you have more data, you're able to come up with interesting new strategies and interesting new products and services. Increasingly, services getting digitized, so you can actually cross boundaries across uh, you know time zones quite much more easily. But Still, I would argue that crossing boundaries in local markets or regional markets easier than crossing boundaries across time zones. Uh, there are examples, you know, of Israel, Israeli companies, you know, succeeding in the U.S., Indian IT companies succeeding in the U.S. and in Europe, but those are not the norm. The norm really is regional. So I think to, even today's world, uh, geography and regional proximity plays a key role, and that's one reason why. We do encourage and you know countries in a region to come together and form uh, common you know sort of blocks where people can in fact have larger access to bigger markets of customers and be able to play with bigger data stores. Sumitra, this is uh, fascinating stuff. My my last question to you really is uh, is something I ask everybody, just because we it's a complicated world, and you know I bring on people who have done interesting things in very fast moving domains. How do you yourself, as you are well, obviously gathering data, you, uh, you must have already pre established data sources for the innovation study, but but over and beyond that, when you are doing your work at uh, you know assessing these countries or doing other of your your academic work how do you stay up to date where do you go who do you sort of trust uh, what are the sources of information that are the most unique or yield the most unique data at this point in time for for the stuff that you care about so innovation right. uh, globalization technology things like that so i'll be very honest with you i'm quite concerned on that uh, for two reasons so one is we still rely on the international organizations you know to collect data from many of our variables and international organizations are under significant stress in most cases financial and otherwise so their focus on data collection is you know getting reduced getting challenged in many cases uh, you've seen for example the world bank you know episode and so on so you know there is a lot of concern around the pressures put on these organizations. So I think if they stop doing that data collection effort, uh, that'll be a challenge for us to replicate or replace that. Uh, there's also a challenge of these organizations uh, renewing their indicators because many of the indicators are stuck, you know, in the indicators that are valid for Econ 20 years ago, but they've not been updated to an economy of today's uh, day and age. So that's a big issue that I see as a, a challenge. The second challenge that I see is uh, 
the private sector has a lot of useful data because we have big global giants right now. And they have, you know, large global companies have presence in and 150 odd countries, you know, sometimes 100 plus countries, and they have a lot of data. So how can we enter into some appropriate data sharing agreements with them? Because most of them are very reluctant to give access to the data for competitive reasons or other privacy reasons. So I think there is a whole set of concerns about how do we tap into that private sector data. And there might be other approaches or big data approaches of trying to get that data. And the final point really is I'm concerned about a specific class of data which is very much linked to the internet, which is so critical in the digital economy. Now with this growing sort of uh, you know bifurcation of the internet between the West and China, uh, and China being such a big part of uh, the world, it's very difficult to get data that represents internet parameters in a uniform comparative basis. You can't take data from Google and take data from you know Tencent and combine the two. You know it's very difficult to combine the two. So it's it's it's, it's a very important challenge for us. Well, I, I think you're pointing to some of the things that are very challenging in our world currently, which is the idea of global governance is a little bit under question, not just the system of globalization, but this idea of the value of um, pulling together, the value of sharing, the value of a lot of things that, that all of these processes have depended on in some sort of tacit kind of agreement between world leaders uh, since the post, you know, in the post-war uh, era. And if if enough of that disintegrates, you're right. We, we're going to be in a very different situation, uh, certainly for data gathering and and confidence in in knowing what's actually happening in in each uh, part of the world. Well, Sumitra, this is fascinating. I will uh, dig deeper in the report, and I shall uh, you know follow with interest next year's report, and we'll see if you can uh, churn out another year despite COVID and. Uh, all the other challenges. So best of luck with that. And thank you so much for sharing your insight with me and with uh, the listeners. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And I'd like to invite the listeners to visit uh, globalinnovationindex.org. It's a very simple URL. Uh, you can get the report, download for free. The data is available. And love your feedback also if you have any. Thank you so much. You have just listened to episode 45 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was Global Innovation Index. Our guest was Professor Sumitra Dutong of Cornell University, co-author of Global Innovation Index, published by the World Intellectual Property Foundation. In this conversation, we talked about measuring innovation, the challenges of developing governance at the country level across the globe, and how to improve innovation input and output. My takeaway is that the future of innovation measurement will continue to evolve with the metrics that become available, but could also deteriorate if we are not careful to maintain statistical data and overview through national and international monitoring. In 2020's index, Switzerland comes out on top, with China, Vietnam and the United Republic of Tanzania topping their comparable income groups. Exciting developments, uh, developments in sub-Saharan Africa as several countries there continue to push forward. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.